Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Dr. Tim Sharp has three degrees in psychology, including a PhD, and an impressive record as an academic, clinician, and coach. He has run one of Sydney's most respected clinical psychology practices and is the founder and CHO or Chief Happiness Officer of the Happiness Institute. This is Australia's first organisation devoted solely to enhancing the happiness of individuals, families and organisations. In this interview we discuss how do you actually define happiness and what are some of the misconceptions? What is the role that gratitude plays in creating happy workplaces and why is it so important now to live beyond our work? In his recent books, Habits for Happiness, Habits for Happiness at Work and Habits for Action, he unpacks some of these fundamental concepts. This episode was such an important one and so timely as a result of the current global pandemic that we find ourselves in. It was so wonderful to speak with Dr. Tim. He was incredibly generous and also talked about some of his own struggles and challenges. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please enjoy. Dr. Tim Sharp, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Let's uh, let's jump into it. What is your coffee order? Macchiato. Macchiato, short and simple. Uh, well, actually, I, well, these days, to be honest, I make most of my coffee at home, um, yeah. which is usually just espresso, so just uh, just black coffee. But if I'm out uh, and want something a tiny bit different, I go for the macchiato. Fantastic. What item is still on your bucket list? Uh, look, uh, you, uh, you, obviously you sent through these questions before and I had a bit of a thought about that. T- to be perfectly honest, I've never kept a formal bucket list. I've never um, done that. I set goals and do all sorts of other things. But I suppose uh, there, there, there are and there have been always a number of things I've dreamed about doing. Um, and one of the things, particularly at this stage of my life, I suppose, is I've, I was really keen to do more travel. Uh, now, COVID's obviously <laughs> thrown a bit of a curveball there, so I'm not quite sure when I'm going to get around to this, but I, I guess... Um, yeah, if I had to answer that question, it would probably be more travel, and particularly South America is somewhere I've always wanted to go, never been. I've been to, been lucky enough to travel to lots of other great places, and I'd love to go back there and do more. But um, yeah, I suppose one thing that comes to mind is more travel, and specifically South America, I guess. Fantastic. If you could have a dinner party with anybody there, who would it be, dead or alive? Yeah, now this is another tricky question because there's so, so many. I need a very big dinner table, I think. Right. Um, but I, I guess it, the, the ones that come to mind, and I'll, look, I'll leave out the most obvious ones like my wife and, and some of my best friends because I can do that kind of any time. So I'm going to have a, a bit of a special one where, with some special people that I wouldn't normally get to do. Um, and I, I guess, to be honest, the, the sorts of people that come to mind are some of my... Uh, I, I love music and I love reading. Uh, so I guess it's some of my favourite musicians and creators and artists. So um, David Bowie uh, comes to mind. He was my first love. Um, particularly my first, uh, I was really quite a young, very young teenager when I first discovered, I was introduced through him, to him through a, an older family friend. And, uh, and, that, and he was very influential in my life, not just my music life. Um, the idea that you could be so many different things and be so different, I always thought was fascinating. Yeah. Um, there are other great musicians, I suppose, a couple of maybe almost cliched like um, Bob Dylan maybe and yeah. uh, maybe even in more recent times, um, Tom York, I guess there's a, there's a couple, couple out there. Um, but I saw some of my favourite authors too. Um, 
uh, J.D. Salinger, I was a, I used to, I haven't done it for a while now, but I used to read and reread Catcher in the Rye every year. So I've probably read that 20 times or something or other. And, and, and also, as you may know, or some of the listeners might know, there's always a mystery around him, his persona. And um, so I think that'd be fascinating. Uh, William Gibson is another author who some of your listeners might have heard is kind of, I suppose, I suppose science fiction in a way. I don't read a lot of science fiction. It's not. It's yeah. It's not really science fiction. But he, he. For those who don't know, he actually, um, essentially, in, invented in a sense through fiction the idea of the internet. Um, he or he's credited with the first concept, sort of ten or twenty years before the internet really existed. And he's written a couple of books that I really loved. Uh, and then there, I got. There's so many more. I'm sure I'm going to leave out some people that I, I'll regret not mentioning later. I suppose there's some great. Um, politicians and thinkers of our time, maybe even people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King would be pretty fascinating as well, but uh, that's probably enough for now. <laughs> Look, it sounds like a, uh, a one heck of a dinner party with a very long, uh, very large table, so it sounds like a fantastic, uh, fantastic discussion. Uh, what is one meaningful purchase that you have recently made, something that has impacted your life? Um, this this is a great question. It's a really interesting questions, and this is a particularly interesting one because I, I am um, I'm a bit of a minimalist, so I don't actually buy a lot of stuff, and I haven't bought a lot of stuff over COVID. I, I think um, online shopping's boomed through COVID. <laughs> I haven't really yeah. I haven't really been a part of that, uh, although I've done it. I have bought a few things, I suppose, but nothing really meaningful. Well, I suppose what I bought more of in recent times is, is books, I guess. Uh, yeah. As I said, I'm a, I'm a big reader and I've read even more than normal over the last 12 months, I guess, because I've had more time to do so. So maybe just a couple of books to, uh, um, which have, yeah, which are a big part of my mental health as, as much as anything else in my life. So. Have you uh, watched the recent Netflix documentary about minimalism uh, directed by Matt Diavella? It's uh, quite fascinating if you haven't had a chance. Oh, I watched one probably a couple of years ago by The Minimalist. Is this a different one that you're referring to? Uh, yeah, so this is a new one. And so oh, okay. uh, my wife and I recently watched it. And uh, each day throughout January, January the 1st, you um, get rid of one thing. January 2nd, you get rid of two things. And so far we are, obviously that compounds quite quickly. So that's the process that we are currently struggling through at the moment, searching our house for things to get rid of. So it's a, it's a really interesting documentary. If you hadn't had a chance to look at it, I'd highly recommend it. So what, on, on the end of January, do you have to get rid of 30 things in one day? Correct, yes. And so the, obviously the, uh, the 29th of January is 29 things before uh, on that day and then 30. So it does compound quite quickly. Uh, it starts off quite easy, uh, but then becomes um, a lot more challenging than we uh, probably thought. But it was incredible how many things you do have in your house. And so that's sort of the process that we are on as well. So it's a, it, I would highly recommend that if you haven't, uh, if you haven't checked that out. Um, so you talked a lot about reading, a lot of things, you're a, a, an avid reader by the sounds of it. Um, so what is one aspect of your life that you are currently trying to improve or currently trying to get better at? Yeah, um, look, I guess, uh, not surprisingly, I suppose, for, given what I do, but, uh, but I've always been, well, both professionally and personally, very dedicated to self-development, I suppose, and self-help. So it, it's something I possibly spend even too much time on trying to trying to get better at things. And so, so sometimes I've got to actually just stop and say, no more getting better, just accept what you are, I suppose. But the thing that I have given a lot of thought to, particularly over um, the last few months and maybe even the last four years uh, in some ways, without getting too political about it, um, 
But I think what certainly what COVID has highlighted to some extent and US politics has highlighted maybe more so for a slightly longer period, uh, some very strong differences of opinion. Um, yes. And I, I'm one that's always, I've always been very passionate about being clear about my values and wanting to stand up for what I think is right. But I need to be very careful that that doesn't tip over or can overlap quite easily with intolerance. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, it does at times. I, I, uh, yeah. Because I am very passionate about certain things that I believe very strongly in, um, I have at times, I think, been intolerant um, when it comes to people, even family and friends who hold different opinions. So, um, again, I need to be careful about that because I don't want to give up what I believe in. But it is, uh, I suppose, to come back to your question, that is something I've been very conscious of for a while now and am definitely keen to keep working on through this year is being more patient and tolerant and open-minded without, as I said, necessarily giving up on you know what's clearly important to me. So it's a fine balancing act sometimes. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for your transparency and honesty with that. I know that's really difficult. And I know for me, the thing that I'm wondering as I get older and I have um, two young kids um, is that there are very few things that I know for sure. But those things that I feel like I do know for sure, I believe quite passionately. And it is that that balance, I think, between um, obviously um, being tolerant, but also being honest and transparent with what you're what you're believing in or what you're thinking. And, and thank you so much for being honest. With that. It's really interesting to hear that. So for, for those people that are not familiar with your work, for people that have maybe uh, been living under a rock or in some uh, dark place somewhere on earth, uh, could you please maybe unpack um, uh, what it is that you're focused on and give it sort of a brief summary of what currently has your attention? Yeah, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give the brief version and if there's anything you'd like to, me to expand on, I'll be happy to elaborate on that later. But my, So in, in very simple terms, I've spent the last couple of decades, all my adult life, I suppose, um, uh, learning and practising uh, in some way or other different aspects of, of psychology. So I started out in a fairly traditional path as a clinical psychologist and researcher and academic. Um, so I did, uh, I did my undergrad psychology with honours and then a clinical master's degree and then a PhD and worked for what I, what I consider sort of the first significant chunk of my career as a clinical academic. So I was a, a therapist um, providing uh, therapy services, but also doing research and also teaching. Uh, and most of that was in a clinical academic role through the University of Sydney and a major teaching hospital here in Sydney. Um, uh, I then went into private practice. And so that the sort of the next stage in my career was uh, when I discovered, I guess, a bit of an entrepreneurial gene that I didn't know I had. Um, and I went into private practice, built a very successful business, um, which is something I hadn't thought of much before that. Um, and that was a very different stage in my career because although I was still a part-time a therapist, I was also learning, well, I had to learn a lot about being a manager and a business owner and um, yeah. a bunch of other stuff that they didn't teach us at university. Um, and then there was kind of a third stage of my career, which is where I am now, I suppose, which is where I discovered positive psychology. So for those who aren't familiar, um, uh, well, most people are probably familiar with traditional clinical psychology, which is uh, or counselling psychology, which is focused on, um, you know, treat, identifying and treating things like stress and depression and anxiety and relationship difficulties and those sorts of things. Um, positive psychology, which was born um, technically informally born, sort of twenty or so years ago, um, was well. I suppose it started out was started out by a few predominantly North American psychologists who said, you know, for so long. We've been asking what's wrong with people and how do we fix it? What if we were to ask what's right with people and make the most of it? So, ra- And they're not mutually exclusive, but rather than focusing exclusively, as psychology had done, on distress and dysfunction, 
what if we were to focus a bit more or a lot more on happiness and thriving and flourishing and, and anyway long story short when i heard a bit about that in its early days i got really excited about it i thought it sounded fantastic that's when i established the happiness institute and that so this last stage of my career has been predominantly all about um trying to understand learn as much as i can and promote the principles of positive psychology as widely as possible in as many ways as possible uh, and so i suppose just to finish off so i do that through um you know coaching consulting writing and speaking are probably the main things i've been doing in recent years fantastic it sounds look i um you seem incredibly positive and incredibly happy and you seem to really embody your uh, a doctor happy persona and i think um i know every interaction that i've had with you um, you've always been so generous uh, with sharing uh, your time and your resources and so on and so forth. And that for me has been incredible. Do you think there are any um, misconceptions about happiness or positivity or how would you define uh, that term? I know I've asked you three questions in one there, uh, but um, maybe start with some of the misconceptions that you think people may have of any of happiness. Well, there are lots. And in fact, I, um, it, it's probably surprised to some people to hear or to learn that I, I actually spent a lot of my time busting a lot of the myths and misconceptions. Um, yeah. and, and in fact, just to go back even a step further to the, to the prequel to that question, I suppose, where you're referring to me, um, thanks for those compliments. But in fact, I'm not happy all the time. And that's one of the greatest myths and misconceptions is that even though I've, uh, I'm Dr. Happy, um, I've actually suffered depression for almost, almost all my adult life, um, quite serious uh, and chronic depression at times with some significant suicidal ideation at times. Uh, I, I'm a very private person, so I don't share that lightly, but I do share it and have increasingly shared some of my personal story, particularly in recent years, because I think it's vitally important to smash the stigma. Um, much of my early suffering, particularly in the early years, was compounded by my unwillingness uh, to reach out and ask for help. Um, and this is going back quite a, a long time now. So this is going back before before the days of Are You OK Day and Beyond Blue and some of the great campaigns we've seen in recent years and some of the great work by school-based organisations like Batir, for example, that I'm involved in. But um, again, it, it, didn't, it didn't cause my problems, but I think if it wasn't for the stigma associated with mental health, I would have been, I would have reached out and asked for help much sooner and much more willingly and therefore probably not suffered as much. So. Although I, I do work at it and I, I try to, particularly in my professional life, try to be as positive and happy as possible, uh, it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, and so again, I guess that's you know one of the misconceptions about me and my role is that I'm happy all the time, which leads into, I suppose, one of the misconceptions about happiness, which is that no one is happy all the time and no one should expect to be. Yeah. Um, because even though um, there are many benefits to happiness and positive emotions more generally. There are also benefits, uh, significant benefits to some of the so-called negative emotions. Um, and I, I, you know, I put them in inverted commas because I don't really like to refer to them as negative emotions because they actually have a lot of value. They serve a very useful purpose. Things like uh, stress and anxiety and even frustration and anger and sadness and grief. These are normal human emotions. And I think part of happiness in a way is accepting unhappiness uh, and, and and learning to live with that. Um, and that, so that's one of the misconceptions, one of the myths about positive psychology is that it's just about positive emotions. It's not. It's about thriving and flourishing as best we can. Yeah. And as I said, that's partly about accepting 
the dark side of life, uh, which is very real and very normal. And, um, and I mean, particularly in the last 12 months, I suppose, many people have realized that uh, maybe more so than previously. So, so yeah, I guess that one of the, you know, one of the main myths about happiness is that we should, you know, that it's everything and we should try to have it all the time. Well, no, we, we, we want, if we can have as much as possible, that's great. Nothing wrong with that at all. But, yeah. um, but the re we've got to be realistic at it, about it. So it's got to be grounded in reality. And as I said, the reality is that some of those so-called negative emotions are normal, appropriate, and even healthy at times. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know personally for me this year has been uh, particularly challenging, not uh, uh, only because of the uh, circumstances surrounded COVID and all of those complexities, but also we had a particularly um, a traumatic family event. And so for me, um, I have always been, like you said, quite similar to yourself. I, I would argue that someone who is quite positive and quite upbeat, and it wasn't until it all sort of came crumbling down and I, um, for the first time, actually reached out and spoke to someone. And that was immensely, immensely, immensely helpful. And so I think that there are some, some and I am by no means an expert in this area, um, but I think there are some very some things that we have to open up and we have to talk about. Um, and I think it's it's extremely important, like I said, people like yourself and other practitioners that, that are actually approaching this with a with a level of substance um, and understand it's not just about happy feelings and positivity. Um, sometimes there are some really real and complex things that people have to work through. And um, I, uh, I, yeah, I'm really grateful for you sharing that. Thank you. And um, it's, uh, you raise a really interesting point as well about happiness um, uh, being not necessarily the elimination of all negative emotions, but uh, trying to work out um, how to um, have those simultaneously with positive emotions. I know I've probably paraphrased you a bit there, um, but do you think it's important uh, to make sure that we're not ignoring those negative emotions um, and to make sure that we are learning how to, how to deal with them and walk through those? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, we, you know, we, we, there's good research to suggest that if you, um, you know, the more you try to push things away, the more they'll push back. The more you try to resist things like negative emotions, the more they persist. So um, denial or you know, pretending they're not there or burying your head in the sand um, quite simply doesn't work. In fact, it can make things worse. Yeah. Um, so as I said, we need to accept. Um, and, 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 you know, and psychologists have, have known this in different ways for many years. Most of the great philosophers and religious thinkers have known something similar too. I mean, Buddhism is a great example. That, you know, the, the the first noble truth of Buddhism is is that suffering is inevitable in a sense. So, um, yeah. and many others have said similar things in in you know, different ways. So, um, so it's vitally important to accept that. I mean, I, I suppose you know when people ask this question, I I put another question back to them and say, look, just imagine imagine a person that never ever never ever experienced any stress or anxiety or sadness yeah i mean can you can you if they did i mean if anyone said they honestly did i'd be concerned about them in a slightly different way i mean that would be you know that'd be a bit weird um and it'd probably be indicative of some other sort of problem i mean it, you know as human beings it's totally normal to be sad sometimes to worry sometimes to to get frustrated you know stuff goes wrong certain negative emotions are a perfectly normal and appropriate response to that. But 
uh, and this is the important part, I suppose, we, we, there are ways that we can learn and what we want to do is learn how to manage that as best as possible, I suppose. So we don't necessarily want these things to take over our lives. Um, there's a great quote which, which I think relates to this, which is uh, something along the lines of, you know, we can't always control how we feel or what we think, but we do want to make sure that what we think and how we feel doesn't control us. Yes. Yeah, and that's easier said than done. I know that better than anyone. Um, but that's kind of the secret to life, the universe, and everything. If you can, you know, if you can accept these things uh, for what they are, use various strategies, which you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners uh, use in different ways already, and learn. I suppose learn how to get back on with life as quickly as we can, as best we can, as soon as we can, etc. Yeah. Um, and that's what it's all about, you know. So it's okay, just I suppose just to be a bit more tangible about it. It's okay to be upset for a minute or an hour or a day maybe, but we don't necessarily want that to turn into multiple days, multiple weeks, et cetera. If we can contain it, then that's, um, you know, that's helpful. Yeah, fantastic. And it does sort of raise the question of how, how people actually do deal with these negative emotions through either uh, illicit drug taking or, or eating or, or, or so on and so forth. And I know for me, one of the things that I decided to do um, as we were going through this particular family event of which everyone is okay now, thankfully, um, was I actually decided to start running as opposed to whenever I felt stressed. And so what I would do is instead of sitting on the couch and um, uh, having a glass of wine, which is uh, not a terrible thing, but I think for me, the thing that really helped me was to actually make sure I was getting out and exercising and, and actually choosing a way to deal with that stress and that frustration, um, maybe in, in a more positive way. But um, yeah, I think, um, do you have anything to say about that, about how uh, individuals proce can process those negative thoughts and what are some uh, practical or beneficial ways to do that? Yeah, 100%. Um, well, firstly, um, so I'll preface this with what might sound obvious, but it's important to state the obvious sometimes. Uh, and that's that everyone's different. Uh, and that's, again, it, it might sound a bit obvious, but it, it really is important because what works for me won't be exactly the same as what works for you and what works for you won't be exactly the same as what works for the next person. So this is part of the challenge. You know, people like me can write books and put out podcasts with general principles, which we know work in general. Uh, but we don't know exactly how they work for you or the next person, etc. So, so that's the first thing I say. Everyone is different. We all need to work it out, and sometimes that's through trial and error. You know, you don't really know. But, uh, but what you um, highlighted, maybe without even realizing it, is the very first important step, which is a form of mindfulness or psychological awareness. Um, the first point is actually to stop and realize what's going on and be aware of what we're doing. Because some of those things you referred to, like reaching for a glass of wine, for a lot of people, that's kind of an automatic thing that happens in their subconscious. They don't even realize they're doing it. They don't even realize they're scrolling through. I mean, scrolling through social media is a way of sort of, you know, again, without people realizing it, of numbing emotions or, or avoiding thinking about things that are really important. So there are all sorts of things that many of us do, again, without even realizing it. And if you don't realize it, you can't change it. So that's really the first step is, uh, well, recognize we're all different be prepared to try a few things out but be mindful and so really to, to practice self-awareness and mindfulness to realize what's going on because only then can you start to question is this helping or not yeah there's no doubt that some things help more than others um, things like uh, alcohol as i said uh, it, particularly excessive use and long-term use are not good as, as you know again there's nothing wrong at all with a glass of wine um i enjoy a glass of wine or a beer every now and then. But there's no doubt that for some people, uh, their use of, of substances, of drugs and alcohol or um, you know, et cetera, can actually be 
well, can be distinctly unhelpful and, and can obviously have significant uh, yeah. side effects and problems in the long term. Uh, but there are some other le you know, less obvious ones, as I said, like scrolling through social media, binging Netflix, whatever, which, which might not seem that bad and, and aren't necessarily that bad in, in a way, but they can be forms of avoidance. And if we're avoiding something, then we're not really dealing with it. So, so I guess that's the first thing is to stop and think, you know, what do you do when you're upset? What do you do if you're bored even? Uh, and is that really helpful? And then start to look at some of the more obviously beneficial things, the things that we know from the research, things you'll see in any good self-help book. Yeah. And they are things like exercise, for example, like setting and working towards meaningful goals, like practicing mindfulness and awareness, um, you know, spending time just sitting with unpleasant emotions, for example, rather than trying to push them away. Yeah. Uh, talking to others, reaching out and asking for help is, is undeniably helpful if you have those people in your lives. Uh, focusing more on what's going well rather than what's not going well. So there are, yeah, there are a number of things which, again, you'll easily find on any number of good websites or in good books or whatever. Um, if you're not quite sure where to start, just start anywhere and try them out. Uh, give yep. them a good go and see what works for you. Fantastic. It's it's so interesting to hear you talk about um, happiness as something which has substance and something which is um, uh, can be measured and can be talked about and can be a can be built into our lives. But how do you kind of you've talked a little bit about the definition of what happiness means? But how do we measure if we're becoming happier or we're becoming more fulfilled or, or how do we even begin to put some sort of metrics around that? Um, uh, that particular um, particular concept. Well, to be honest, for most people, um, it's not necessarily something they need to do. Um, or for most people, it can be a relatively simple thing. So, so you know, for, for most people, uh, average people living their normal lives, uh, just stopping every now and then asking yourself, uh, "Am I happy?" Um, is a is a reasonable enough question, and 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 the answer will provide some reasonable enough information. Um, there are, uh, one thing some people don't know about psychologists is that they love measuring stuff. So there are actually lots and lots of measures of happiness. There are hundreds of different happiness surveys, questionnaires, et cetera, et cetera. And, they, and they're not necessarily, it's not necessarily that one is right or wrong or better and worse. They just measure it in a slightly different way. So I guess going back to the fundamental concept, happiness actually is a far more complex phenomenon than most people realise. Um, and maybe I should just spend a bit of time on that to explain. So firstly, uh, when most people think of happiness, they think of uh, one form of positive emotion. You know, it's a form of feeling good. Uh, and that's, that's, that, that is what partly what happiness is. But it's also, um, it, it can be used much more broadly to represent a whole range of other positive emotions. Uh, in addition to happiness, we, we have things like joy and contentment and satisfaction and even pride and calm. I mean, even calm is a form of positive emotion. So, so that's one of the first things we can do that actually can be quite helpful is to broaden our definition of what happiness is from purely that feel-good form of joy to a whole range of other positive emotions from the kind of obvious high arousal things like joy and excitement through to some of the low arousal but just important things like calm and satisfaction. But then there's a whole other level of happiness which is important to keep in mind and that's not just positive emotion but what psychologists and philosophers would more probably refer to as living a good life or living our best life. And although that includes positive emotions, it also includes a lot more. So if we're living our best lives, um, which is really what positive psychology is about when it talks about thriving and flourishing. Yes, we want positive emotions, but we also want a few other things. And so the, and the main building blocks are things like living, also living a meaningful life, 
Now, if you're living a meaningful life, you will probably experience some positive emotions, but not all the time. And if you think about, so if you think about when you've set and worked towards a meaningful goal, like uh, completing a university degree or, or, or any sort of project, you know, writing a book or, or setting up and launching a podcast, um, when you reach that goal, it can be incredibly satisfying. That sense of achievement is fantastic. But as anyone listening would know, along the way, there will almost certainly be some blood, sweat and tears. There will almost certainly be some obstacles. That you need. And so that's not always fun. It's not always pleasant, but it's still part of living a good life. So living a good life isn't always fun, but that meaning and purpose is just as if not more important. So when we think about that bigger concept, it's yes, positive emotions are important. Yes, feeling good is important, but it's also about doing something that's important. It's also about doing good for others. Um, this is one of the most important contributors to my happiness and well-being is doing good for and to other people, which also brings us to another important component of living a best life, which is connectedness. Yeah. So real happiness isn't just me, me, me. It's not just about selfishness or about hedonism. Um, selfishness and hedonism aren't entirely inappropriate, but if that's all we do, um, it's not going to really last long. It's not really going to go deep. So what we know about the really happy people is that they have both more and better quality connections and they do more for others. They have uh, stronger connections and a stronger sense of belonging with family, friends, colleagues, and the world more generally. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on and on about it, but if you put all of that together, that bigger, broader um, definition of living our best life, you'll also see there are lots of ways you can measure happiness and lots of questions you can ask to see whether you're, uh, whether you're hitting some of those targets, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fascinating, and there is so much in there, and it sounds like such a fascinating uh, area of study with with so many different things to be able to uh, to be able to look at. And I think, are, are you um, sorry? Has there been more of a focus recently on uh, corporations being um, uh, in developing happier workplaces? And what do you have to say in terms of some of the impact of happy employees and happy organisations, and the and the effect that that can have? Yeah, look, uh, so yes, that, that's a big part. That's most of my work, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily a new thing. I mean, I've been doing that for, um, it shows how old I am, for at least at least 20 years or so. Um, and But it even dates back before that, although the language they used prior to positive psychology was a bit different. But they were, they were you know, people have been trying to do the same things for a long, before I came along, obviously. Um, it's just that what positive psychology did roughly 20 years or so ago is to say give it a, a slightly different structure a different and a different language so we talk about it in slightly different ways but at least since i established the happiness institute that's been the biggest part of my work building positive culture and that's because we know well we've known for a long time intuitively i think but we now know academically and and we've got some good research to support the fact that in very simple terms happy employees are better employees um, happy workers are more engaged so they there's more you know more discretionary effort um, they collaborate better with colleagues they interact better with clients so, and this applies to teachers as well we, there's some really good uh, research that shows that teachers 
with higher well-being, uh, oh, sorry, the students of teachers with higher well-being are more likely to have high well-being themselves. Mm. Um, so happy teachers, you know, it's in all of our interests to have happy teachers. And again, I'm using the term happy there in the broader sense. Mm. It doesn't mean, you know, that you're going to be smiling and laughing every minute of every day. Um, if you can smile and laugh some of the time, fantastic. Uh, but again, it's about more than that. And that also includes workplace conditions and fair and reasonable pay and a whole bunch of other, you know, it actually gets very complicated. But um, but there is no doubt that whether, whether it's teachers or you know, bankers or lawyers or IT workers or whoever it is, if their levels of, of satisfaction uh, or happiness, whatever you want to call it, are higher, they will uh, perform better. I guess that's a very simple way of describing it. So, so yes, that's been, you know, those ideas have been around for a long time and that's most of what, what I've been doing for, you know, for this la latter stage of my career. Yeah. Is it, um, have people been, a, sorry, is there a renewed focus on, on that in terms of workplaces? Have you noticed any um, organisations that are particularly interested in promoting happier workplaces now or is it something which is sort of slowly simmered to the surface? Yeah, well, I suppose when I, it's, it's been a gradual build, so in my career anyway, yeah, so when I first started out, it was, um, uh, well, there were people doing it, but not many, and it was a fairly informal, not, you know, not a very structured industry or profession, I suppose, there wasn't really anyone that specialised in it, so, and, and in some ways that worked out well for me, because when I started waving the flag in that area, um, I got a lot of attention early on, which is, Great, so I got a lot of work out of it in, in a way, uh, but not just with organisations. But that was also, you know, I've spoken to lots of teachers and schools over the years, and again, a lot of schools have been really interested in it. But I suppose that so it has been a gradual, you know, slow and gradual build uh, over the last decade or so. Um, I guess what has changed in, is, is so there are definitely more and more looking to do it, and in some ways, it's an easier sell now. Um, when I started out, I had to really convince people that there was some validity and utility in doing this. Now, it's almost a given, um, and and it's almost you know it's it's almost assumed that yes, this is something we should be doing. Now, that's partly because I preach to the converted a bit. I mean, the people that come to me by definition are the people that are interested in this already. There are lots that aren't still, but not as many. Um, and so, um, and, and, and sorry, what, one other thing. What, what we've also seen in recent years. Um, uh, particularly here in Australia, that in some ways has led the way, is a parallel growth in what's uh, what's been referred to as positive education. Mm. So positive education, as I'm sure um, I'm sure some of your uh, listeners would have heard of, is essentially um, a, a spin-off or a parallel to positive psychology with specific applications in the education sphere, and that's mostly with schools, but it's also about universities as well. So the principles are basically the same, it's just the application is slightly different. And, and we've, been, you know, we've been very lucky, or not lucky, but we're, I think we can be very proud that there are some of the world's leaders in positive education are based here in Australia. So Professor Lee Waters has, has really led the way, some of you might be familiar with. Um, uh, Susie Green is another Australian, uh, has done a lot of great work in this area. Um, and I've been lucky enough to work with and, and, and be a part of that as well. But um, yeah, I think we can be really proud of what we've done here in Australia and what many, many of the academics and practitioners have done to lead that positive education uh, sphere, which I, I feel is, is incredibly important. You know, I think, and so, sorry, there's a couple of levels to the positive education, which I'm, I'll just break down before we go on. One is, one is about teacher wellbeing which is vitally important. Um, so, you know, again, as I said, if, the, if we can get teachers feeling as happy and healthy as possible, they'll do their jobs better, et cetera. Uh, that, but it's also about student wellbeing. 
and that that involves a few things it's about helping them identify their strengths and thrive and flourish and be resilient um, so they can be happy and do well but also uh, as a preventative or um, in a way to combat mental ill health uh, and then there's about the culture more generally in the school community which also when it's done well it reaches out to parents and and the broader community so it, it is quite complex to cover all of those bases but when it's done well if you get all of that right um, you know that's a tremendous thing to be doing yeah fantastic there's there's so much there is so much in that and I think especially um, considering teacher well-being and the particular audience that you're speaking to today is is so important and um, do you, how do we so if we just focus again on working with young people and how we actually how do we build those resilience and that self-regulation skill those self-regulation skills into young people i mean i'm a i'm a parent of two very young girls i understand you're a parent as well um what sort of conversations do you think we should be having with young people each day to help build some of those skills into their lives yeah, this is something I'm really passionate about. Um, as a as a parent, as a psychologist, as a mental health advocate, I think on all those levels, um, and for a number of reasons. You know, again, I think if we can if we can teach kids stuff early on, we can definitely prevent a lot of bad stuff happening later. Uh, at the risk of oversimplifying, uh, we can't completely eliminate. You know, I don't I don't actually believe we would ever, will ever totally eliminate mental ill health. Um, you know, there's always there's always going to be some people that suffer, and there's always going to be problems, and things will go wrong in the world. But I definitely think we can minimize it and or uh, create a situation where people recognize earlier and reach out and ask for help earlier and that's that's important so even if we can't eliminate something like depression for example or anxiety as long as people are identifying it earlier and getting help earlier that's still a pretty good outcome i suppose so so there's a couple of things that we need to that, that answer the question one um uh, one is to actually just have these conversations um, so the fact we're talking about this now is fantastic this isn't something that would have been spoken about early in my career. I mean, it just wasn't. Um, you know, there was just a lot of ignorance, a lot of, uh, as I said earlier, a lot of stigma. Um, so that you know, it is important. There's still a long way to go, but it's important to recognise how far we've come. And as again, maybe some of the older uh, listeners out there would realise, we have come a hell of a long way, and it's fantastic. And we should celebrate that. And there are some great organisations now that do fantastic work with schools. Like um, I'll give another plug to my friends at Batir, who some of you might have heard of. I do a lot of work with them. They do great school programs. But they're also uh, reachout.com.au, etc. And and even now, you know, Beyond Blue, etc some school-based programs so you know this this is stuff that didn't even exist even only 10 15 years ago um, and are now becoming almost the norm I mean there are even some older programs bounce back for example which is a great resident it's been around for a long time so um, so you know the fact that we're talking about these things now the fact we have come a hell of a long way but also one of the things that's really important is to recognize and understand that that these are things that can be taught and some people don't even realize. So resilience, for example, is a learnable skill. We know that. We know that from the research. And that's important to understand because if you don't, if you think it's just something you're born with or not, um, well, then we're kind of stuffed or not. <laughs> you know, or some people are stuffed yeah. anyway. Yeah. Uh, but it's not. We, we, well, well, so we do know that some people will be born with certain personality traits which might make it a bit easier for them than others. So we know that, for example, there is a genetic contributor or a hereditary component for things like resilience and optimism and even positive emotions to some extent, which means, said, some people might find it a bit easier than others. But, and this is an important part, uh, everyone can learn. 
And it's, it's no different in some ways to saying, you know, you said you, you started running. If you go for a run every day, you'll get fitter. If I go to the gym every day, I'll get stronger. Well, we can also exercise psychologically and become psychologically stronger, which is another way of saying more resilient, say, in some ways. So, yeah. uh, so that's really important to, to understand that this is a learnable skill. It's a bunch of learnable skills, I suppose, not just one. But we can, we talk to our kids about it, help them understand that, that they can uh, become stronger and then teach them the practicalities of thinking differently, which is at the heart of resilience and optimism, uh, building more positive relationships, which is also at the heart of happiness and health and well-being. We can teach them those, those basic component skills uh, and, then, and then create an environment that fosters and encourages that. Um, we'll go well on our way to, as I said, not necessarily eliminating mental ill health, but certainly minimising it and encouraging more people to talk, out, talk about it and reach out and ask for help, which is you know, super duper important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it seems um, maybe ironic or maybe silly asking you this question, but do you feel positive um, about the future uh, in terms of these discussions around mental health and well-being with um, both with individuals and workplaces and with students? I do. I, I very much do. And as I said earlier, there's no doubt there's more work to be done. Um, no doubt about it at all. I mean, we, we, you know, we're definitely not at a stage where we can just sit back and say, everything's fantastic um, but if I you know I guess I've got the benefit of, of quite a few years experience in this area and in related areas and as I said we've come a long way uh, and we're you know and there's a lot of good stuff coming as well so so I am confident and again the fact that we're having this conversation uh, and I have lots of these conversations with different people so the fact there are lots of conversations like this going on yeah. um, does fill me with confidence and optimism that uh, although things aren't perfect they're a lot better than they were and they'll in, a, in another 10 years or maybe when my children have children then hopefully they'll be even better again and I do feel that I do that we're definitely heading in the right direction and again if you look at the some of the resources that have been devoted to this area which again didn't even exist 10 15 20 years ago um, it can't help but get things you know, get get better absolutely well um, dr. Tim two uh, final questions I want to be respectful of your time and um, uh, thank you so much once again for, for taking the time today and for your, your honesty and your transparency. Um, where can some of our listeners find more information about you? Uh, well, I'll start by saying thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been great interacting a bit on Instagram and seeing some of the great work you're doing as well. So thanks for doing that. Um, but I guess the, so the simplest answer to your question is um, if they probably go to my website, www.drhappy.com.au. So it's D-R-H-A-P-P-Y.com.au. There's a bunch of stuff there, but also links to some of my audio books um, and my social media. If anyone's on social media, um, uh, well, the Happiness Institute on Instagram, the Happiness Institute on Facebook, Dr. Happy on Twitter, um, and I'm more than happy to answer any questions people have afterwards if they want to get in touch with me through any of those platforms. Fantastic. Is there uh, any closing thoughts or any final um, announcements you would like to make? No, thanks for having me, and thanks to everyone out there. I know, again, it sounds a bit of a... Um, I don't want to sound sort of too cliché, but I do... Uh, very much value the work of teachers and educators uh, and like many people um, I think they're you know, too, too often um, 
Well, I wouldn't say undervalued, but, uh, you know, I definitely think that, uh, um, you know, particularly in the last 12 months ago, also many of us, particularly our parents, have, have been filled with an immense gratitude uh, and appreciation for the work that, that many teachers have done to, you know, shift to online teaching and, and adjust to all the changes. So I guess I, uh, I'll finish by saying thank you to you, uh, well, to you for having me, but also to everyone out there listening and, and for the work you do. I mean, I... Um, again, I don't mean to be just sort of sucking up to it all, but I think you guys do some of the most important work um, in, our, in, in anywhere. And so thank you very much and, and keep on doing the fantastic work you're doing. Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Dr. Tim. Thank you so much for your time. And hopefully at some point we can do a round two. I really do appreciate you talking to me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions today. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com and please remember to subscribe for future episodes. If you could also let me know your thoughts of our discussions, please rate and review the episode on iTunes and share the resource with anyone that you think would find it useful. Thank you for listening. Until next time.